The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 10, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face, he will never see. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their hearts. You will cause your ear to hear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the men of the earth may oppress no more. We are now in Numbers chapter 27. It's uh, the first 11 verses. It's entitled, The Daughters of Zelophehad. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. With only 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and many of them a page or less in length, some of them a lot less, One surely must wonder when cursorily reading the Bible why a lot of space seems often taken up by things which could be shortened or restated in a way which would take up a lot less space. And there are some things which seem like they could have been stated somewhere else, thereby saving unnecessary repetition. For example, the five daughters here were mentioned in the last chapter. Wouldn't it have been better to just abbreviate this account and plug it in there instead of here? Apparently not. Putting it here after first mentioning them once already is a way of getting us to consider the details more closely. 
It's like when Rebecca was first introduced in Genesis chapter 22. She was just casually referred to in a list of about 15 other names. But then, voila, she appears again in a pivotal section of the Bible. As far as the daughters of Zelophehad, their story includes details concerning the disposition of property if there isn't someone directly available to inherit the land of a deceased person. In such a case, there has to be someone to eventually take possession of it. Who that is and how far from the deceased can show a lot about the life of the person and what he lived. Solomon referred to someone like this who is still living, but doesn't have anyone to take over his inheritance. What he describes is the life of a lonely soul. Our text first comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye ever satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Our lives are vanity, even under the best of circumstances. Our bodies grow old, our minds start to slip. We lose those around us that we love, and the things that we have stored up over the years often fade away right before our eyes. Everything is temporary, everything is transitory, and nothing is certain, including our next breath. This is true for every person on the planet. Life is futility, vanity, and then death. And all we saved up for ourselves will be passed on to another who may squander it in a moment. This is reality and this is futility for all. That is, except for the one who has a hope which transcends this temporary earthly existence. And even then, there are those who think they have such a hope, but their faith is misdirected. As I like to say, misdirected faith is wasted faith. That's an even worse fate for them. They deprive themselves in this life expecting a trip to glory, and then they deprive themselves of any hope of future glory by placing their expectations in the wrong path to that future glory. Without Jesus, this existence is truly the most heartbreaking of all possible things. But thank God for Jesus who gives us a sure hope and a guarantee from God himself that we are saved through him. This will be seen once again in today's passage. It is a wonderful part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is a statute of judgment. It's verses 1 through 11, all of our text verses or sermon verses. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The narrative now turns to a matter which will become an obvious problem within Israel if it is not resolved now, before the family land inheritances are made. These daughters of Zelophehad were mentioned in the previous chapter in verse 2633, where it said, Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons, but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. Eleven names are mentioned in this one verse. In the first half is the genealogical reference going back to the individual tribe of Manasseh, which in turn is one of the two tribes derived from Joseph. In the second half, the daughters of Zelophehad are reintroduced by name. Verse 2 continuing, And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. The Hebrew reads Mala, Noah, and Hogla, and Milcah, and Tirzah. However, their names are listed in a different order in Numbers 36, verse 11, where it says Mala, Tirzah, and Hogla, and Milcah, and Noah. Tirzah and Noah switch places. As Mala is named first in both, she may be the eldest, and the other four are probably on an equal footing with one another. The reason for this could be as simple as them being quadruplets, or that only the eldest was recognized with this particular status. Whatever the reason, they came together as a single group to seek an answer to a dilemma that they faced as the daughters of a man who had no sons after him. Verse 2, and they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, 
The women have a case which requires some type of resolution, and it is obviously a matter which was not resolved at a lower level within the camp. Because of this, they present themselves before the lawgiver, the high priest, the leaders, probably meaning of the individual tribes, and finally, all the congregation. This doesn't mean that all of the congregation was there, but that the matter is open to any of the congregation who were there, whether leaders or lay people. The matter is not being done in secret, but it is rather a matter which would eventually need to be made aware of by all people because it is precedent setting. The location is said to be at the door of the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle as the New King James Version says. It's the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the entire edifice inside of which is the tabernacle, which consists of the holy and most holy places. The door of the tent means by the altar of sacrifice. As has been seen since Exodus, the brazen altar and the door of the tent of meeting are actually united in one thought. One cannot go through the door without first coming through the sacrifice. That is a picture of the work of Christ. One cannot go through the door, meaning Christ, unless he goes through his cross. This is the place of judgment. And so they now present their case. Verse 3, our father died in the wilderness. On the surface, it seems that Zelophehad was of the generation of those 20 and above at the time of the sentence upon the congregation who were destined to wander and to die in the wilderness. But in verse 4, it will seem more likely that he was under 20 and happened to die, meaning he was not one who was under sentence. If so, he could still have died as old as 58 or even 59 years old. This even seems likely because he was named in the census which had just taken place. If he was alive, that means that he just, at this very time, died. If so, all of a sudden, his inheritance is called into question before he had a chance, excuse me, to have a male child. The timing cannot be known, but the Lord has orchestrated this sequence of events to specifically resolve this matter at this time. Either way, the matter at hand is that an inheritance is expected, but with no male son, there is, as of yet, no guidance For what is to be done. This is based on the words of Numbers 14. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. Either Zelophehad or his daughters was entitled to entry into Canaan, and thus they were entitled to a land inheritance. Verse 3 going on, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah. It is questioned why they included this statement, but what seems obvious is that it is based upon what is said in the account when Korah was destroyed. At that time, it was noted that all of those in the family of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were swallowed up, including their wives, their sons, and their little children. As even the little children were swallowed up, it meant that they were cut off from any inheritance. But such was not the case with the daughters of Zelophehad. Therefore, they have a much stronger argument that it was not intended that he be cut off completely as they were, even though he had only daughters. It is apparent from later in the Bible that Korah had sons who did live, but they were obviously old enough to be in their own homes and not counted under the sins of Korah. But because these daughters were still a part of their father's house, and because he was not such a villain as Korah, their legal rights to an inheritance seemed right and just. This is because, verse 3 going on, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. This could mean one of several things. Two of the most likely are that he was one of those 20 and above who were forbidden from entry into Canaan, the penalty of which was death in the wilderness, or that he was simply a man who sinned before God as all people do. Either way, John Lang speaks very highly of their understanding of theology. He says this, Indeed, these daughters of Zelophehad possessed a fair faculty for doctrinal discriminations. Before I go on, that's something that most people in the church today completely lack. Any ability to doctrinally discriminate what is going on in Scripture. He goes on, Death without sin going before it was for them at any rate inconceivable. What is understood by them, either way, is that forgiveness of sin under the Mosaic Covenant did not mean the granting of life. 
When it says in Leviticus 18 that the man who does the things of the law will live by them, it obviously excludes being forgiven of sin, which is allowed under the law, such as on the Day of Atonement. If it did, then the people would be forgiven and they would never die. However, they were forgiven but still died. The imperfection of the Mosaic law is seen in this simple statement by the daughters of Zelophehad. Death under the law of Moses was a natural result of life, not an exception to it. As his death was a common thing, which came about through his sin, his name should not be forgotten. Verse 4, why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Without being dogmatic about the reason, because dogs have pedigrees and not genealogies, it seems that Zelophehad was actually not one of those 20 and above who rejected the Lord way back in Numbers 14. This is because of these words here. They say, why should the name of our father be removed? The word is gara. It comes from a root which means to scrape off. If he was one of the older generation, his name would not have been entered in as an inheritor of the land in the genealogy of the previous chapter, but he was. Now that he has died, and because he has no sons, they are concerned that his name will be removed, scraped off from the records for landed property. What is seen here is that these girls were not simply looking for land because when they got married, they would have land through their husbands. What they want is the preservation of their father's name. All of them would marry and take on new family names, and the name of their father would simply disappear. Thus, the act by these girls is one of love for their father and his name. It is not of greed. Verse 4 continues, Give us a possession among our father's brothers. The words here are actually words of faith. Israel has not yet entered Canaan. The last time they were this close to entry, and they were this close, the people rebelled and rejected the Lord in their cowardice. Some wised up to their plight after the Lord's words of punishment and decided to go into the land and subdue it without him. That proved equally as much of a disaster. Now they are just outside of Canaan with the same large nations and well-defended cities as before, and yet these young ladies stand before the Lord asking for a right to the land which is not even yet subdued. They are looking forward to their own land and inheritance within the people of Israel, as if it is an already accomplished fact. Their understanding of the law is remarkable, and their faith in the provision of the Lord is equally so, or even greater. In this, they are like five wise virgins who anticipate the future and prepare for it. It very well may be that Jesus had these ladies in mind when he spoke out his parable in Matthew 25. Because of these young ladies, Zelophehad is not only mentioned here, but nine times in the books of Numbers, Joshua, and 1 Chronicles, and in each instance, he is named in reference to his daughters. Imagine that. Verse 5, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. It seems like a simple statement, but it must be contrasted with what it said in verse 2. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting. The daughters of Zelophehad brought a request before those who sat in judgment over Israel. The lawgiver, the high priest, the leaders, and indeed the whole congregation, meaning whoever else was there at the time, could not come to a resolution concerning this matter. And so Moses had to take their mishpat, or case, before the Lord. Thus, this makes the fourth and final matter, which was of such importance that it specifically says Moses went in before the Lord to obtain clarification as to what should occur. The first time was in Leviticus 24, when the blasphemer was put in custody, while Moses went in to obtain direction from the Lord as to what should be done to him. After that, there needed to be an answer as to what should be done concerning those who were defiled by a dead body during the time of the Passover. That is recorded in Numbers 9. The third instance is that of what was to be the fate of the Sabbath breaker in Numbers 15. And finally, Moses required direction in this matter concerning the inheritance of Zelophehad. The first was for a violation of the law leading to someone's death. The second was to gain understanding about something not specified in the law because of events surrounding someone who had died. The third was for a violation of the law, again leading to someone's death. 
Again, the fourth is to gain understanding about something not specified in the law because of events surrounding someone who had died. It is a marvelous A-B-A-B pattern found in scripture. In each of these, there is a connection to Christ. To reject Christ is to blasphemy the name of the Lord who is Christ. To reject the Passover is to reject Christ who is the Passover lamb. To reject God's rest pictured in the Sabbath is to reject Christ who is our rest. That's Hebrews uh, 4.3 if you want to look that up. And to not receive God's inheritance is to not receive Christ who is how we obtain our inheritance. The matter of Zelophehad's daughters is one which is more than just a minor issue, but it is one which anticipates much greater theological issues, at least implicitly. Verse 6, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This would have been from above the mercy seat, as it says in Numbers chapter 7. Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. None of this surprised the Lord, and yet he allowed it to happen so that the precedent would be set. The decision would be rendered by him, and then it would be recorded in his word as an everlasting testament to the faithfulness of these five wise virgins. Verse 7, the daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. The words of this verse, as recorded in the Masoretic text, have a gender discord in them. Does anybody remember the gender discords of the book of Ruth? How astonishing they were? We've got one here. It says, Naton titen lahem achuzat nachala, or in giving, you shall give them a possession of inheritance. The words are in the masculine, even though it is speaking of the women. Likewise, the words betok ahe abihem, or among brothers of their father, are also masculine. However, at the end of the verse, it says, Veha'abarta et nachalat abihen lahen, or and cause to pass inheritance their father to them. The words are feminine. There are several suggestions as to why the Hebrew is this way. The common and easiest suggestion is that it's a scribal error. That's people like Cambridge say that all the time. This is just an error in the text, right? That's so easy. It is recorded in the masculine in this way in other manuscripts, and so obviously this must be an error. However, it would make more sense to correct a gender discord than to purposefully leave an error after it was found. That is not a good excuse. A second possibility is that it is referring to their sons, meaning the daughter's sons, when they get married and receive the inheritance through their daughters. This must assume that they will actually have sons, which obviously their mother and father did not. Not a good excuse. A third option is that this is speaking of their husbands, who must be from the same tribe as them, as will be mandated in chapter 36. Unfortunately, this cannot be the answer. That is putting the cart right in front of the horse. The Lord has not yet given those instructions because what brought them about has not yet been introduced. A fourth reason, which I suggest, is that because they are now regarded as the inheritors, they are regarded as sons reflected in the Hebrew masculine. There's nothing other than an obvious rejection of the intentional use of the masculine that would preclude this. If it is so, then it looks not to the permanent consideration of these girls as males, because it reverts to the feminine in the second half of the verse, but rather to a theological point about inheritance, which is stated in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Those verses must be taken in the proper context, which they usually are not. People use them to state that Jews are no longer considered Jews or that Gentiles are now Jews because of Paul's words. But that is as nutty as a football bat. In the same set of verses, Paul writes of there being neither slave nor free, and yet he writes acknowledging that there are both elsewhere in his epistles. 
He also writes of there being neither male nor female. And yet, unless I'm preaching in an Episcopal church today, I'm pretty sure that there are both males and females present. I bet we could stop and I could identify which are which, too. Well, at least with most of you. What this verse in Numbers and what Paul in Galatians refers to is the concept of an equal position in Christ, regardless as to cultural identity, status before human law, gender, or whatever other distinction one can think up in their heads concerning how things are now. Oh, he's black. He's not entitled to a uh, inheritance in Christ. Oh, he's a Chinese. He's, we can think up all kinds of things, and Paul is saying that does not apply. Yes, there are still Jews and Gentiles, and it will continue to be so, just as there are males and females. However, our position in Christ makes no distinction despite the difference. This is certainly why it speaks of the daughters of Zelophehad in the masculine first and then in the feminine. Their inheritance is positionally equal, distinction despite their female gender difference. Verse 8, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, the Lord, having resolved the matter for these five wise virgins, decides to continue to clarify it so that other such possibilities, which arise along similar lines, will be taken care of as they come. As we go through these, he ensures that the bases are covered by the subject matter, but he leaves other issues related to them unresolved. This is especially what comes about in Numbers chapter 36. In this, the matters will again have to be decided. However, when that time comes, it won't say that Moses went to ask the Lord for clarity. Rather, it will be Moses simply stating, this is what the Lord commands. Whether Moses went back in a second time, or whether he's told these things now, but it is only recorded later, is not revealed to us. The Lord's word is recorded in methodical steps, and it slowly reveals things which, whether categorically, chronologically, or for whatever other reason come about. As each thing is revealed, the wisdom of its being disclosed at that time always becomes evident because this is the word of God and it is astonishing. I sit there on Monday mornings and I type up these commentaries for you and as I'm sitting there, my heart starts beating faster and faster and sometimes I have to stop and I've got to call Sergio and talk to him about it because I'm so excited because there's perfection in this word that people keep saying there's contradictions and there's error and there's, it doesn't make sense and there's a scribal mistake and all. Never! Is that the case? Never. Verse 8 continues. If a man dies and has no sons, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. As has occurred in this chapter with the daughters of Zelophehad, so the precedent is set for all such future occurrences in Israel and under the law of Moses. The sons were to receive the inheritance from the father. This would be in accord with any other inheritance provisions, such as the right of the firstborn to inherit a double portion. In accord with those other provisions, it is the sons who bore the name of their father that were to receive the inheritance. Of this, the pulpit commentary rightly states, upon the land was to rest the whole social fabric of Israel, and all that was valued and permanent in family life and feeling was to be tied, as it were, to the landed inheritance. Hence, the land was in every case so to pass that the name and fame, the privilege and duty of the deceased owner might be as far as possible perpetuated. So thorough in this framework now being set forth that scholars note that the feudal laws of Europe followed the same lines as are given here. Rather than the passing of the inheritance by will or by grant, the parameters were carefully followed which reasonably mirror this code found in Numbers written thousands of years earlier. It was to the sons first, followed by daughters, if there was no son. From there, the next parameter is given. Verse 9, if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. The owner is now said to die without any children, either male or female. In this, his labors and his land will be transferred to any surviving brothers. This is appropriate because if he didn't exist, they would have received what was possessed. And it is true even if he died early before the inheritance was set forth. It is logical and appropriate. But, verse 10, if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. This is obviously assuming that his father has died, and that is why he obtained his inheritance in the first place. 
However, exception is noted in scripture where the father was still alive and yet an inheritance was handed out. The Jewish law in the Mishnah actually says that if the father is alive, he would be preferred before the father's brothers in this verse. However, the Bible does not make that statement. It would logically follow, but as far as the Bible, it only deals with a person that has no children and no brothers. After that, the father's brothers are the recipients. From there, their children, meaning the dead man's cousins, would be the eventual recipients. However, verse 11, and if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. Supposing that all of the aforementioned possibilities failed, the nearest close relative was to be sought out and granted the land. This is seen, for example, if you remember, in the book of Ruth. However, though not stated, it would be within the family on his father's side. The family of the wife is not family in the sense which is spoken of in this context. No matter how far distant, the records would eventually indicate someone within the father's family who would be considered the closest relative, and it would be to that person that the inheritance would be granted. Because of this provision found here in Numbers 27, the Jewish scholar Maimonides, the Rambam, said that an Israelite is never without heirs. Verse 11 continues, And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment. The term lechukat mishpat, or for a statute of judgment, is only found here and in Numbers 35, verse 29, which deals with the cities of refuge in relation to a manslayer. The idea of both is a statute of the Lord that entails a fixed, permanent, and authoritatively established judgment. It defines and determines a legal right. Verse 11 finishes with these words, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses had sought the Lord's guidance, and the Lord provided that same guidance. The wisdom of the statute of judgment, along with the other land rules, such as the return of a possession at the year of Jubilee, kept the Israelite society harmoniously living in this land for almost 1,500 years. Though there was punishment and there was exile, the understanding concerning family inheritance was set and it was fixed, eliminating countless problems which could otherwise have arisen in that ancient agricultural society. An inheritance awaits us that is sure and true. It is waiting for all who will come forward and receive. It was secured for us by what Christ Jesus would do, and it is ours for the taking if we just believe. God has spoken that this thing we ask for is right. It belongs to us, though we did nothing for it to receive. With it comes an eternal life, dazzling and bright, and it is ours for the taking if we just believe. Don't fail to come forward. Hear my plea. It is waiting for you if you will but receive. You and all the saints will be there around the glassy sea. It is yours for the taking if you will just believe. Our second thought today is wisdom in the words. There are five possibilities of inheritance seen in the verses today. One, sons receive the inheritance. Two, if no sons, daughters receive the inheritance. Three, if neither sons nor daughters, then the brothers receive the inheritance. Four, if no brothers are to be found, then the father's brothers are to receive the inheritance. And five, if no father's brothers are to be found, then the nearest close relative is to receive the inheritance. There's no need to go past these five degrees of family structure because all families fell under the divisions within the tribes. And so as long as a tribe existed, which they all exist even to this day, there would never be a lack of a close relative. One could continue all the way back to the last division before one of the 12 sons of Israel and still find a relative. I'm going to qualify what I just said. All tribes exist today. We know this is true because of what the writers of the New Testament said. We have this hope for our 12 tribes Though 10 of the tribes were exiled in 722 A.D. or B.C. by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the tribes were not extinguished. If there's one member of a tribe still alive, that tribe still exists. Okay, we get that right out of the book of Judges where Benjamin was almost completely exterminated and yet they remained a tribe because they had living members. Okay, it's a great story. Go read it. It's the last chapter of the book of Judges. So, Having said that, there are no tribal records of those people today. They were all destroyed in A.D. 70. There's only one record of one individual in all of Israel which still exists today. Does anybody know who that is? 
Jesus. It's recorded right here in the Bible. Other than that, they don't know these things. So the inheritance laws were intended for us to know what's going on here and in the typology of the future, not for Israel in the land today. Okay, just so you all understand that. Five being the number of grace is perfectly revealed in the grace of these inheritance laws. An inheritance is something one does not deserve. It comes to them apart from merit. And this is exactly what is seen here. The Lord says of the land of Canaan, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. The land belongs to the Lord. He gave it to Israel as an inheritance, but it remained his in the ultimate sense. The grace of this land inheritance, statute of judgment, was intended to keep the land carefully aligned with the families within the tribes and to protect all those in the families as they lived out their lives. As the land is the Lord's, it reminded them that they were the Lord's possession. There is no way to separate the people from the land and have still both be true. When Israel was exiled for their rejection of Christ, they were also rejected by the Lord. This was prophesied by the prophet Hosea, where the Lord said, You are not my people. Hosea 1 verse 9. However, he later said of them, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, You are my God. That's Hosea 2, verse 23. This is built upon by both Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter, the apostle to the Jews in the New Testament. The Lord has had mercy on Israel, and he has planted them back in their land. They are ready once again to be called the people of God. But that will only happen after they call out to Jesus, You are my God. Together, Jew and Gentile have been brought into the family of God through Christ. Someday, that will extend to all of Israel. As Matthew Henry says of this passage, God himself gives judgment. He takes notice of the affairs, not only of nations, but of private families and orders them according to his will. The petition is granted. Those who seek an inheritance in the land of promise shall have what they seek for, and other things shall be added to them. Tselophahad, or Tselophahad, means shadow of fear. Mala or Machla means infirmity. It is akin to the name of one of the sons of Elimelech and Naomi in the book of Ruth. His name was Machlon or sickly. Noah signifies shaky girl or wandering. Her name comes from the word Nua, which gives the sense of quivering or wavering or tottering. However, it is used when speaking of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, where he is sentenced to be a vagrant or a wanderer upon the earth. Hogla or Chogla means turning in joy. It is akin to the word Chag, which is a festival where they go around in circles. Milka means queen. Tirza means well-pleasing or delight. Together, this family gives us a broad and general brushstroke of salvation as it occurs in Christ Jesus. First, in general type concerning their actions, they have come forward to the lawgiver and the high priest, among others, in order to claim their right to an inheritance in the promised land. That inheritance is first secured for man through the work of the Lord, and then it is the right of those who call on him to obtain their own inheritance. That is seen, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1 with these words. In him, we also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, you may not remember this, but that was our closing verse last week. Do you see how things are starting to tie together? These stories seem disconnected. They seem like they don't make any sense, but they are carefully placed together because God is showing us methodically redemptive history and little snapshots that all piece together. As there are five unmarried daughters of Zelophehad, they can loosely be equated, as noted earlier, to the five wise virgins who anticipate their inheritance through the coming of Messiah in Matthew 25. Though dealing with Israel under the law, the anticipation is that of their inheritance in Messiah. They are without a father, and with nothing said of their mother, whether living or not, they are those who have no inheritance, and yet they are sure that they have their own right to one. The law then provides for it by the word of the Lord. 
The same Lord secured the inheritance through his own work, fully and completely rendered for the payment of the inheritance. And he grants it to those who seemingly deprived of the inheritance are exalted to the obtaining of it. Sin ended their father's life, but the law provided the path for his name to be continued and to ensure that the inheritance would not fail. This is seen in their names. Zelophehad, who died in his sin, represents those born in sin, in the shadow of fear. That's what his name means. As Hebrew says, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death, Zelophehad, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This state of fear of death brings forth mala, or the sickly, infirm person bound in sin. There is a state of pain because the fallen condition in which man exists in this state. Such a person like Cain is left in a land wandering, represented by Noah. This lasts until the person confronts Christ. At that time, hogla, or turning of joy, enters into the picture. And in that turning of joy and obtaining the inheritance royalty is bestowed upon that soul, represented by Milcah, or queen. In Revelation 1, this is recorded. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this state, and as inheritors of the divine promises of God found in Christ, we are found well-pleasing to God represented by Tirzah. These five daughters' names, otherwise superfluous to the narrative, unless their meanings are intended to convey a thought which the Lord intends for us to see. If not, he would have simply said the five daughters of Zelophehad and left it at that. However, by stating their names both in the previous chapter and here, he is asking us to consider them and contemplate their meaning. And in contemplating their meanings, we see what the Lord intends for us to see. There is an inheritance awaiting any and all who are willing to receive it. And this is what these five wise daughters of Zelophehad did. They came forward and asked for that which already belonged to them, though it was only at that time in the mind of the Lord. And this is what we are asked to do as well. Let us not fail to heed the call. There is, in fact, an inheritance awaiting us if we will simply come forward and receive it as such. It is already ours if we will but act. And that comes to a very important theological point concerning what is potential and what is actual. Jesus Christ died for all people in the world. Nobody is excluded from the grace of God which is found in Jesus Christ. Potentially, we all have an inheritance in God because of what Christ Jesus did. But actually, we do not. We must ask for it. We must believe in our hearts what Jesus Christ did is true, and we must accept the premise of what God did for us in him. He lived a life that you and I can't live. He did. We have all failed under the law of Moses. If you have told a lie, you have broken the law because it is a united whole. It is one law. It doesn't matter which part of the law of Moses you have broken. If you have broken one precept of the law of Moses, you have broken the entire law. And you stand condemned before God because of that. But Jesus Christ lived that law perfectly in our stead. And then under the law of Moses, there is what is known as the law of substitution. It is where somebody takes an animal down to the sanctuary in Jerusalem, and that person puts his hands on the head of that innocent animal, and he confesses his sin over it. And then that animal is slaughtered before the Lord. And that is saying that I am transferring my sin to that animal. It now bears my sin, and I am forgiven because of its death. That's only a picture of what would happen in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ actually did what those animals only pictured. He gave his life in exchange for our sins, he died on the cross of Calvary, and if we are willing to accept that premise, then we will be saved. And that is what God asks of us. If you don't do that, you will not stand in the presence of God. You will be cast, I hate to say it, into the fiery pit of hell. That is where all people are going to go. You've got one of two choices, and the only way to procure the first is to go through Christ. And the only way to be assured of the other is to reject Christ. You're on your way there anyway. It's 
Only Jesus. Only Jesus can save you. Please call on Jesus today. Our closing verse comes from 1 Peter. It's chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You wonder what this story of Zelophehad is picturing? There it is. It's the inheritance of the saints. People that otherwise seem unqualified are actually as qualified as anybody else. We have an inheritance because of what Jesus Christ did. It is a guarantee. Man, you call on Jesus Christ and you believe in your heart that he has died for you and been raised from the dead. The Bible says that you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It is done and it is called a guarantee and God doesn't make mistakes. People keep emailing me about this thing about you can lose your salvation and I feel so bad for them that they cannot understand the simple, obvious nature of what God has done. God cannot change and he cannot lie. You go around in your life and you're miserable and you're wondering if God is going to unsave you. What a terrible existence for the believer in Christ that they are taught something like that and they believe it. It's a guarantee. God doesn't lie. Next week is Numbers 27, 12 through 23. Hip, hip, hoorah! It's entitled The Inauguration of Joshua. That'll be our 53rd number sermon. I'm going to tell you what. You want to talk about pictures of Christ? Great stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise, and so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a poem for you. It's entitled, The Daughters of Zelophehad. But I offer anybody here a Maserati that can answer this question, okay? I said earlier that a father was still alive and yet an inheritance was handed out to his son. Where is that recorded? That's what? the uh, son, the uh, wayward son. There you go, the prodigal son. We got a lot of Maseratis. I'm going to go broke on that one, buddy. Very good. That is in Luke 15, 11 through 32. Seeing as how we got a couple minutes, I'm going to read that to you. That's one of those stories that actually makes the new believer in Christ weep because it's so beautiful. Maybe it's you today. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. He's still alive. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The, the younger generation can never learn their lesson. Let me tell you that. But when he had spent all... There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. This is a Jew here, folks. Yeah. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and it is and is alive again, and was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. 
But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead. The son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, for Shurza. And these were the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest, with words to be conveying, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those, no, not of those ones, who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah, but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family? This isn't our druthers, because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord to obtain from him the appropriate word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These words to him he was then relaying. The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession without haw or hem of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. So this shall be done. If he has no daughter, if not any others, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, no sons of his mothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance, so I submit, to the relative closest to him and his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses, as he to Moses did tell. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sure hope that we possess in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have an inheritance which is set aside for us. Doesn't matter who we are or what station we come from in life, what color we are, how much we have, it doesn't make any difference at all in your eyes what you care about is our faith in christ jesus that we believe that he died for our sins that we that he was raised for our justification and that we will live with you for all eternity because of his work and not our own thank you for that sure promise that we possess i pray that every person in here has got enough faith to believe that jesus did that for them and that any person that's listening now or at any time in the future on a youtube video will stop and ponder their station before you and know that they can have eternal life by simply asking for it. Lord God, we thank you for that promise that you have given us. We thank you and we praise you for it and we do so in Jesus' name, amen.